session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Afternoon, welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Jalakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. You could follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Joining me tonight or today is a guest that doesn't need an introduction, or I should say, uh, doesn't need an introduction from me because it's my brother, Parham, who uh, many of you, of course, know and I've had on my show. We were joking uh, as we were walking to the studio before we came in that the last time I think I did a show in the studio on a Wednesday was with Parham and again, so it's kind of like a Parham sandwich, but he's back. But Parham, uh, I'll give a little bit of a background. He uh, went to Columbia Law School. He then went to UCLA Anderson where he got his MBA and then University of California at Berkeley to get his PhD in economics. And so today, let me first introduce him, Param. Thank you for joining me today. It's so great to be with you, Farid. Thank you. Pleasure is all mine. So today, what we actually wanted to talk about, it's kind of a meta type of topic because we're not going to talk about politics as far as political issues specifically and different things. There's so much, of course, going on. But we want to actually talk about talking about politics in a sense because that's something that has become so actually maybe there's a lack thereof really of actual discourse and conversations because of some themes that are going on that we wanted to talk about and so we wanted to talk about talking about politics because we think that that's something that's lacking so kind of a disclaimer we won't be getting into specific political issues as far as giving our opinions on them um, but it'll be more about just talking about them. So, uh, you know, I know you wanted to talk about this issue too, and maybe you could share what your concerns were or some of your thoughts of why you thought this was an important issue to discuss. Yeah, so I think we currently are in a very uh, the divisive political climate. It will be, it has been, and it will probably continue to be for the foreseeable future. And I think it becomes even more important in such times when, when I think emotions are high, when people feel a lot of uh, fear and threat, not just that their position is the right position, but that if the opposing side wins, it's a threat to vital things we value in society. And I think when the stakes are that big, we have an inclination towards even more division and um, resisting anything that seems to be coming from the opposing side. And I think, as you mentioned, Fadid, I think it's important to um, evaluate things with as few of these biases and blinders coming at us as possible, all of us have blind spots. And often those blind spots will be a product of a position that you identify as part of who you are. So if you identify yourself with a particular ideology, a certain mindset, political party, any weaknesses inherent in that position, that viewpoint, uh, may be more difficult to see because that's not only an attack on that position, it's an attack on you because you identify so closely with that. Um, and naturally, we are inclined to such things. We want to be part of groups. We want to be part of teams. We want to be part of other people. We don't want to feel completely isolated. But I think one of the takeaways that I hope we build towards is that we should strive 
to uh, create a worldview that is not exceedingly colored by one narrow viewpoint or position or team because it's unlikely that that entire uh, comprehensive position in all its different areas is completely aligned with everything that you believe. Mm -hmm. um, I think we do that more for the safety of being part of a particular group. Right. Safety of being part of a group and safety of feeling that we are right or because uh, we're not sure, actually, we have some uncertainty in a way of reacting against that as a defense, we tend to go to absolute certainty. So, and that's one thing. So we probably will discuss a few different important mindsets or characteristics that we think will be important in this conversation of how to be aware of the tendencies we have when it comes to politics, political issues, and really related to that moral issues and how we might be able to defend against that. And one that I think is so important is having a level of humility, of intellectual humility of recognizing that no one has all the answers and you definitely don't either as an individual. And so we have to accept that you could be wrong. And not only could you be wrong, you definitely will be wrong as time goes forward with new information, new ideas, things change. And so you mentioned that word ideology. I think that's such an important one is that when we cling to ideologies to tell us that everything functions under this ideology, and it could be in a way, Democrat or uh, Republican, or it could be a type of you know socialism, capitalism, free market. We get stuck on these ideologies and say that, like dogma, that anything under that must be true and anything against that must be false. And so having some intellectual humility and really some intellectual reality is to recognize that most things are a lot more gray. So whatever you think you know, you have to be aware that no of the truth with a capital T is probably closer to a lowercase t, it might not even be that, it might even be wrong. And so we have to be open to that, that you will be wrong about things, you are wrong, even you yourself over time will very likely change some of your political values and beliefs throughout your lifespan, so you will feel wrong to even you. So I think that's a big, important point that's hard because we want to feel like we know, mm -hmm. but just accepting that intellectual humility that we might not know and you likely will be wrong and being open to new information. I think the key there to what you've suggested too is how we respond when we see new information that challenges what we believed before. Because there's two very different uh, reactions one can have and I think both happen in all of us. It's a matter of degree. One is uh, we're, we're a bit surprised and probably a little bit of anxiety, what they call cognitive dissonance, and that what I thought was true is not. And so we feel a little bit of discomfort from that. And the other thing we should feel is a sense of uh, openness and, and, and we should be happy that we now see things in a new way that we didn't before. We learned something, we grew. And if we think about the most pivotal moments in our life, intellectually at least, it wasn't a moment of comfort where someone said, yes, you're right. It was a moment where we challenged what we previously believed. We saw something in a new way. We saw something in a fresh perspective that we never had before. And that was eye-opening and exciting. And I think we can react to new information indicating that we've grown. If we have the exact same positions today that we had five years ago, 10 years ago, even a year ago, then that's not um, something we should be proud of. We should be hoping that we're continuously growing, that we're better than what we were before. And that also goes forward as well, to see that seeing things in a way that is not completely consistent with everything you've always believed is an indication that you've grown. It's an indication right. that you've learned something. Right. And so absolutely, you have to be open to that. And that's another important theme is open-mindedness 
And so being open-minded, it's an interesting thing. I, I think I, I posted something a little while ago about being open-minded because everyone thinks they're open-minded. Every, no one's like, I'm closed-minded. They think they're open-minded, but then the things that you might think they're not being open-minded about, they think those things are true. So they're not open-minded. You know, like they think, well, if the sky is blue, I'm not open-minded about the sky being blue. Or, of course, during the fires, there were different colors. But let's just say something that might look so straightforward. So that's how they think if you say, Let's talk about gay rights or abortion or this. It's not that they think they're closed-minded. They think, no, I have the, again, capital T, truth. This is the truth. You shouldn't be. And there is some truth to that. I mean, some things that are known, but usually it's the degree of how many things you think you, quote-unquote, know. And that's the issue of being open-minded means, again, it relates to that humility of it's possible that I'm not right, at least the possibility there. So it's not that you have to live in constant doubt that I'm wrong, I don't know anything but that you are open-minded to the fact that it's possible. So even like what you were saying about the cognitive dissonance, you have to be willing to take that in first. And most people are so resistant, something we might talk about later, kind of like a psychological immune system. They're so defended about anything coming in that we push back. And when I say we, it's about all of us. We all do these things, but something to be aware of. These are kind of human tendencies that we want to look at. But so if we're not open-minded, then you won't even take in. And that's what we see people uh, uh, doing is that they don't want to even hear. They don't want to believe. And we know we all do this, that you are very quick to try to discredit something that goes against it. Oh, what did that research prove? Oh, they probably did it wrong or this. If it agrees with you, I see another study showing how right I am. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think we, it's important that we, the biggest step is recognizing that that's happening in all of us. Because the moment that it's recognized, it's seen that that bias is there, we begin to think about maybe... Uh, having some uh, intellectual counters to that within ourselves to recognize that I probably will be a bit more biased in this area because that's a position that I hope to be true. That's someone that I'm against or that's someone that I'm for. So information that supports them, I will be more inclined to be in favor of. Um, and I think that's that recognition is really, really important. Um, and I think what's changed today is the way that we receive information, it's much easier to curate, even inadvertently, we're not doing it purposefully, but the world around us is curated towards others around us who basically support what we already believe mm -hmm. and also nudging us a bit towards the more extreme versions of that position. It's why we see things gravitating towards becoming more and more polarized and people much more isolated. And so the danger there is if you're surrounded by people, you know, in the past they would talk about powerful leaders who were surrounded by yes men and yes women, people that just supported and agreed with everything they said. And in a sense, today we all have a version of that in our own worlds, where we have people, the information that comes to us through social media um, and through other mechanisms through which we consume a lot of media today is agreeing with you, it's confirming with what you already knew. We already, you mentioned the bias, the confirmation bias that we have, where we're drawn towards things that align with what we believe. So we already have that bias within us, but then we can also create this world around us that seems like we're consuming the media that everyone else is but it's much more tailored to who we already are. We've surrounded ourselves with a lot of people that look a lot like us. Right. And that's, you know, um, and we will probably will touch on that even more because it is such a big topic of the role that social media and different types of media, even like news outlets that people watch and how they're geared towards, you know, telling us what we already want to hear and believe because that's so comforting. And so it's another push to recognize that comfort it sounds like such a good word. Of course, me and Pat Home are now sitting in these chairs and the comfort of the chair is very good. We want to make sure you feel good. You feel comfortable. And so usually we think of comfort as a good thing. But in our lives and most of the things we experience, 
we have to recognize that comfort is very often the enemy or comfort is even in people's lives. Like I'll work with clients and I say, it seems like you are comfortable. Let's just say being home all the time and never being around people, even though they're missing people, they're feeling lonely, they're yearning for a relationship. So I think, how can that even be that I'm comfortable? But well, it's comfortable because it feels better. It feels easier than risking going into some unknown into things that you don't know what can happen in ways that you could get hurt in ways that might dis disrupt your own equilibrium that you've created. And so comfort, we have to be aware, as good of a word as it sounds, in a lot of ways it can be good in certain ways, that when it comes to our life intellectually, morally, politically, that if you're just comfortable, you are choosing the easier way out and you're probably choosing to ignore a lot of what is actually out there because it just feels nicer to be like, okay, this is comfortable. That yeah, I already think this and that guy thinks this and she thinks this and everyone thinks this and we're right and they're wrong. It's much more comfortable to have that than to challenge yourself. And But we have to embrace discomfort. Really, to live a healthy life, you need to embrace discomfort. Absolutely. Yes. And that plays a role. You mentioned even the immune system. The immune system needs negative things. Like if it's too cocooned and too insulated from anything harmful, it actually it atrophies. It's not good for the immune system. And I think that analogy rings true in our intellectual immune system as well, that we need to be exposed. I think it's easier for us to see this sometimes in terms of other contexts like food or exercise where it's discomfort. It's, mm -hmm. it's a, it causes a lot of negative feelings, negative emotions. The more comforting thing would be to not exercise and to eat everything we want. And we realize that that discomfort is good for us. It's much better for us. I think it'd be good if we also can expand that understanding towards intellectual things, realize that the comforting thing, comforting information, isn't what we always need, isn't the healthiest thing for us. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so, and we'll, you know, in the next segments, we'll also look at something I've talked about recently. We, you hear this term identity politics, which has a certain um, meaning to it. And it's, uh, it's not that side, but I also look at how you identify with your politics or how strongly you identify. So your own identity in politics which I think is interesting. And maybe we can uh, talk about that in the next segment because I think it relates to why it's so scary to embrace uh, things that are against what you already think is true or what you believe because it's not like you're just looking at ideas. It's attacking you. So we'll talk about that again. I'm joined by my brother, Parham Holakwi. We are talking about talking about politics. We'll be right back. back. I'm joined again by Parham Holakwi, my brother. We were talking about talking about politics, something that especially with the elections here in the United States, less than a month away, is very much on people's minds or a heightened sense of intensities there. I actually uh, filled out my ballot last night and I'm looking forward to sending it today. And so I hope everyone does take that seriously or opportunity and really obligation in a way to vote by obligation i mean you get to contribute to the democratic process i know people will say well in my state it doesn't matter or my state this doesn't matter and I, I don't think that's how we should view democracy in the sense that everyone gets a vote and everyone i think should vote and in that sense we'd have an understanding of the voice of the people so just first of all winning and losing doesn't mean everything of course that's very important whether it's a candidate or ballot measure, but also the percent tells us something. If we see 90% of Americans think something that's very different than, well, I don't need to vote, so then many of them don't vote and it becomes 70%. Uh, 
that gives us a better under, a worse understanding or not as good as an understanding of that. And secondly, you know, when people say that I get it, sometimes elections are closer. So I'm not saying it makes no sense. But in a way, what you're saying is that my vote has to determine the outcome, which almost means you want to be the monarch of I pick who's going to win. So you're not going to pick who's going to win in a democracy. You get to have one, whatever the city, let's say it's 300 million people, one 300 millionth of the vote goes to you, but you should vo voice that vote. Um, and of course, I, I know many people in many countries don't get to vote and, and even people in the United States, uh, various things I won't get into, don't always get to vote. So I hope everyone will take that seriously, that it is a right, but in some ways it's also an obligation and duty, I think, to um, take that vote seriously and make sure you do vote. So I hope everyone will. I know the deadlines to register for many places have. Early voting has started in lots of places. Uh, as you've seen, it, voting, there are some challenges to it this year course with covid and with other things that are going on so i hope everyone will make a plan and make that happen so please go out and vote so that was just a uh, you know as we're talking about politics we can't not talk about voting also oh, absolutely and and none of this um none of the things that we're discussing here is to say to not be aware of the issues i think mm -hmm. it's good that you be civically involved evolved in what's going on in the world um and that's all positive i think sometimes for some people it can become another new source of information overload or even addiction, where there's a point at which the additional amount of news you consume or media you consume, mm -hmm. be it through social media or elsewhere, um, the returns in terms of how much more you know and understand are not as important as what you're losing in terms of attention not being placed on other things. And also remembering that when we're consuming news, whether it's political news or, or anything else, um, we're much more inclined to pay attention to what's negative. That's why the news is always um, leaning towards being more negative things. We pay more attention to things that are negative, things that are positive, are not going to capture our attention in the same way. And of course, what's newsworthy is what's unique, mm -hmm. what's different from the norm. We as human beings respond to change, um, and the news media reflects that as well. We're most inclined to draw, be drawn towards the thing that's the most unique event, and yet when we're consuming an overwhelming amount of news and other sources of media, it begins to see that that's, that version of the world that the news presents is the world, that the world is much more uh, combative, much more belligerent, there's much more disunity. A lot of that stuff, I think, becomes magnified more than probably is really the case, e even the extent to which we all disagree with each other. I think I've seen people that maybe years ago, they thought they were relatively close in their belief systems, even if they were from different political parties. And that gap between them has widened. I don't think they've changed as much as the way they receive information has changed. The way they receive the opposing side through media has changed. And so now they feel they're very far, far apart and they can't even have a discussion mm -hmm. about basic issues together. I think that's a shame. Sure. Yeah, the polarization is definitely uh, increased. And arguing about politics, even uh, maybe you won't want me to share this, but just a few days ago, Parham and I were uh, together and we were talking about something. And I don't even think we disagreed that much, but we ended up having a... I don't know if you can say argument, but it got a little bit heated talking about something. So uh, also it's another um, way of reminding that when I'm, we're talking about this, it's stuff that we deal with as well, obviously, and, and we face these challenges that we thought it was important to talk about. So we were, I don't think even on that issue so far apart, but it turned into an almost argument because of some of these tendencies that we can have that we can get defensive about our side, or it becomes about winning and losing, not about coming to some truth or understanding or agreement. So uh, We've definitely been there, too, and it's something I think a lot of families are experiencing when they have especially stronger opposing views. 
if they're having arguments, they can't talk. I've seen it with a lot of my clients where they say, oh, my, you know, my mom is a this or my son is this or whatever. And they believe different things and it's becoming very combative. And sometimes we do have to, uh, at least if we can't have a fruitful conversation or at least a conversation that um, could be respectful, you might be better off not talking about it. And something we might talk about as we talk about talking about politics, sometimes it's better not to. You don't have to always have the conversation as much as we overall want to promote the discourse and the discussion, sometimes you have to realize that it won't be beneficial based on certain factors that, that are there. And so you want to be very much aware of that. Uh, and you were talking about, you know, the news that we watch, the ways that that's also contributing to the polarization, I think is really important and something that you want to be aware of. So yeah, we definitely want to encourage people to have a voice. So it's not about we shouldn't uh, talk at all about politics or that it's bad that, you know, be an informed voter. And I'll, I'll share, I even uh, had done some research on different things that I wanted to vote on. But last night I spent a few, I don't know if it was hours, but maybe an hour looking into issues further. Uh, there's different ballot measures based on the city you're in of what to vote for. What does it mean? Try to get some background on some of those things. So you want to be an informed voter too. You don't want to just vote as an exercise to put the sticker on. I'll probably get the voted by mail sticker and put it on and take a picture of myself today. So I know that's one of the things people like to do. So it's not just to, to flex and say you voted, but hopefully make your vote count by also being an informed voter. So first it should count by doing it, period, but also make sure you get yourself informed to the best understanding that you can have. And yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that, that meant what you mentioned about being an informed voter. I think that's part of the reason people often gravitate towards the more simple uh, mm -hmm. perspective where someone can give you, I, I have friends who I know I was mentioning this to Fatty, they buy their clothes tailor-made, their home is tailor-made, their car, but when it comes to their worldview, their life philosophy, they, they buy it off the rack. Mm -hmm. They just take something where it's a complete comprehensive perspective on what they should think about every issue and it simplifies the process for them. Um, when they see a new issue, the only thing they need to look to is what is my uh, political party or whatever party or group I'm identifying with, what do they think about it? That's what I think. Mm -hmm. And it simplifies things so you don't have to go and do the work and the research. And of course, yeah. we're not suggesting that people should go out and spend their days and nights researching all of the political issues. That's not needed. But to realize we do some of these things as a simplification and others are doing the same thing. Often they've, it's because of the experiences they had growing up, what they've seen, how they were raised, other factors. And if they have a different political identity than you do or, or a different viewpoint, it doesn't make them necessarily an awful person, a bad person, someone you shouldn't be able to even have any connection with. We're much more than our political mm -hmm. party. Mm -hmm. we're, we're full human beings, and hopefully that's just a small, small part of who we are. And if it's a small part of who we are, we should all be able to get along in spite of those things. Right. I think in the past, it seemed much easier to do that, and I think today it's become less so. Um, and also, I think, you know, the, what we view in media is often the theater of politics where it's best and most entertaining when it's one side against another, someone advocating strongly for one side and another side zealously, passionately on the other side, and they go at each other. Their goal isn't truth. Their goal is not cooperation or building some coalition and building a new understanding, a deeper understanding. They're not trying to help and educate the other. They're trying to win. Yeah. And even like I said, the drama of it, I mean, like, you know, you look stuff, stuff up online, like YouTube, and it says like, so-and-so eviscerates like some from the other side you know and people love that someone destroys you know feminist da, 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 you know thinking and like well whoever it is like you just see it's not just about here's an idea it's like destroying eviscerating like this drama 
it's like so extreme again it's like we're so right they're so wrong um and even when you watch these videos and, and you know it's funny sometimes you'll watch a video like that and it's like okay like they made a, their point was a little bit better than the other person's point, but it's not destroyed and the other point is you know if you look at a debate of course if you get a very like a person who's a good debater promoting your idea versus just like a novice on the other side even if the it's not about the ideas at that point it's of course the skill of the debaters or the people there also who's going to impact the outcome so you might feel so good to see the strongest version of yourself you know someone maybe who's like racist sees like the oh the, thinks of the best versions of themselves of whatever race they are and like maybe not as good if someone else is like see we're better than you know whatever it's one of the things sure. that we do um so it's just being aware that again it goes back to because it feels so nice to be told that you're right that it feels good to be right look all of us have that everyone wants to be right yes. i don't like to be wrong so we don't like to be wrong or even sometimes be open to that possibility. So we love to see like someone smart on our side defeating someone from the other side. Sometimes they'll be smart too, but let's say not as skilled in debating or whatever it is, but an instance where they won. And to us, it's like proof that our idea is better, that I am better. And it's funny, we were watching the Lakers last night, but it becomes this like team kind of feeling where it's like my team is better. I am better than you and we are better than you. And so we get caught into that whole drama of it and that sense of defeating. And like you said, rather than recognizing, you know, it's interesting, eventually we're going to have to work together, you know, so thinking we're just going to like pummel your enemy, mm -hmm. especially your enemy who's even in your country, but even in the world, but pummel your enemy and then somehow get to peace or some progress. It's almost never going to be that way. You're going to eventually have to work with people that you even disagree with in order to get to some kind of even the progress that you want. Yes, absolutely. And you mentioned, you know, having people that speak with confidence and certainty and they eviscerate the other side in a mm -hmm. debate and why we get comfort from that. We enjoy watching that. First of all, it's just the drama and the theater of that attack. But it's also when it's aligned with our position. I think to the extent that we feel small or we feel uncertainty about what we believe, we want even more of someone who comes with conviction and confidence and speaks about it in a way that is not just intelligent, but also seems powerful and bulletproof like they, they can't be defeated and when our position when their position comes across as that way it's appealing to us because it gives us a sense of comfort it alleviates that's that anxiety that we felt about the position if we had any even small doubt or uncertainty about it it removes it and it makes us feel stronger and bigger because i, I remember even when i was very very little i felt even more of a Alliance with, for example, you mentioned the Lakers, the mm -hmm. Lakers, because I was I felt like this small kid who still hadn't figured his way out in the world. And they made me feel big. These strong, big athletes were going out and conquering something. And I felt that by identifying with that, I, too, was being lifted up. Mm -hmm. And I think to me, the, it's because I felt small. It came somewhat from from weakness and a lack of personal identity. And I think we all do that, even as adults, the less we can be uh, dependent upon some big ideology or a big idea um, or a big group that believes a certain thing, the less we need that. I think the more we can be intellectually honest to ourselves, to others, and the more rich our view of the world will be, the more diverse our view of the world can be. You, you see it in groups and organizations. If everybody thinks the same, the group atrophies, their ideas don't grow. But if you have different diverse, divergent, diverse viewpoints within a group, um, different experiences. That's why we look for a balance of men and women and, and diversity of other things, but also just life experience, different ways of thinking. Mm -hmm. When we can bring that together in a group, they thrive. I think within ourselves also, we should try to bring in as many different differing viewpoints, even if they don't 
completely aligned with what we had before. We don't have to accept them. We can, it just gives us, we've changed, we've evolved. The same reason we go on, for example, a vacation to a new country. We can't now, but when we could, what was beautiful about that is not that we're going to move there or we're going to completely adopt their way of life. We may come back to our own way of life after, but we've become new. We've seen a different way. We've seen a different way of living, a different way of experiencing things, a different mindset. And that helps make us richer. It develops us. It's not a threat to us. It's not a threat to where we live. Right. And it always can, it's always going to feel like a threat. That's the thing you have to be ready for. I mean, now traveling might not feel like a threat, but when you hear new things, and that's what we're saying before, it's understandable. It's not comfortable. And so usually we pick things based on what feels right. Oh, it feels good to go in this direction. So I go in this direction. Right. So even I felt that when I read an article that might disagree with my viewpoint, it does like, I almost have to kind of like grit my teeth. Sometimes exactly. like, I don't like this feeling, but let's see what they say because it's discomforting. It takes away some of this, like, yeah, what we think we know, we like to feel, you know, we, there's ways we deal with certain anxieties. And one of the ways is certainty. So we're, we know we're not sure. Or like you said, we know we can feel weak inside or not so strong. There's some of that tendency that we all have. And sometimes we try to cling to someone or something or some group outside of us to give us this feeling of strength, of almost invincibility at times. And, you know, that's the comforting thing. And so it's tough to challenge that. Like, I've had that experience where I'm like, okay, let's see what this person says about, you know, and I know they're kind of opposing what I think about this topic. And it isn't easy. So, again, we're, we're recommending things that we know are not easy because we think they are good as is often the case, things that are good for us aren't easy in the moment. And so we want to encourage you to think about things like being open to hearing the other side as hard as that might be. In the moment, it's always going to feel wrong, right? In that moment when you're like, hey, you want to hear someone that agrees with you or someone that disagrees with you? You're always going to want to hear from someone who, who agrees with you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important too, this is not something we're doing as a responsibility for others that this makes the world a better place for me to do this. It's, it's for ourselves to get a, a deeper understanding of what we're dealing with because knowledge is power, right? Um, it's a famous quote, but I think it's also really about what we do with that knowledge. It's the potential for power when we have knowledge. But if we can have more of it, if we can have, a, again, a richer worldview that is not just this one tiny sliver of the world that gives me comfort, the better off will be. And part of this, again, is not our own intentional doing. It's what's become as a product of the way we consume media today, mm -hmm. where we're getting such a curated version of the world that limits us. And it's, you know, we want to use technology throughout history we have to enhance our lives, but we don't want technology using us. You know, our sure. attention is a valuable resource that's being used. And that might be to our own detriment. And those are places where we want to get ahead of that. Yeah. Well, I mean, anytime technology advances, it always can have negative consequences. And that's always happened. Like, you know, you look throughout history, it's kind of funny now when you think back. So we maybe can have that same viewpoint. Like when, you know, trains were coming or different technology, people are like, this is going to ruin society. There's always people that are afraid it was going to ruin society. And it, uh, every technology can have negative impacts and influences. So it's not like, you know, one of those things is very easy. Social media is so bad. Like people say phones are bad. Like I get it. Like they can have these really negative impacts and it's, it, you can use it in ways that damage your life and relationships. So I'm not saying it doesn't, but looking at it in this, again, it goes back to this. It's a lot easier to try to think of things in black and white. Like people sometimes will say, don't you think phones are like the worst thing that has happened to us? And it's like, I, I can get where you're coming from. Of like it's affecting mm -hmm. attention spans and relationships. People are using it for distractions. People are, are using it in different ways that are not good. But um, to say it's all bad is going to be something where you're missing that 
there's a lot of nuance there we can understand. So any technology can be good. Social media is not all bad. It's done a lot of good as well. But there are these very negative consequences that can have in the ways that it polarizes people, that it makes us have distorted views of what is quote-unquote reality. We literally can live in two different realities, even in the same day in the same city. Um, that is concerning. It's something that we have to be aware of, and you sometimes have to combat that or by doing things like looking for the, the opposite side. But let's get to an, another commercial break. I, I'm joined again by my brother, Parham Halakwi. We were talking about, talking about politics. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Parham and I today are discussing or talking about, talking about politics. And one thing that uh, you've mentioned, I wanted to talk about uh, some more about like opening up or looking at things and what we have to also do is recognize we we have to do the thinking for ourselves, which I think is a little intimidating. And we're looking to others. And even as we discuss these topics, of course, hopefully we don't prescribe anything that people will tell them they should do it in a certain way. But people like to have that comfort of they find someone or some group. And you see this all with these intellectuals that become well known, that people cling to them as they say this. And so I don't have to think anymore. What did he or she say about this? What did he or she say about that? And they, you know, it's interesting because it has the same theme of religion where people like a dogma, they just say in our book, it says this. It's like, well, our, my intellectual leader says this. So I believe that. And they, they don't, they don't think for themselves. And so we have to always remember that, that it's nice to just think we can leave that to someone else to do the thinking for us, but you're going to, uh, you know, like you're saying, buying things off the rack, you're really buying the whole rack. You're buying someone's whole, everything, thought being, and their biases. Everyone has biases, no matter who they are, no matter how much they try to use their rational mind or thinking in a certain way. We all have biases that we aren't even aware of. And obviously those are the most dangerous ones and the ones that have the biggest effect. So it's just a reminder that you're going to have to think for yourself. It would be a lot easier to not have to do it, but the reality is that you're going to have to think for yourself and no one can do that for you. Absolutely. And I, I think this probably begins, has deep-rooted um, causes. I think we often, as children, are begin to realize we can't completely trust ourselves. And so we need to rely on others. We feel small, weak, uninformed about the world. And so we internalize this, this viewpoint that what we believe or what we see is not enough. How we view things is not enough. And so what we give up is maybe some level of our own authenticity, our own, our own view, our own um, interpretation of the world, which is one of our most valuable gifts that we can share, is from our unique vantage point, our unique worldview and the accumulation of our experiences, our knowledge, our education. What do we see? That's the most valuable thing we have to contribute, and we're so scared of that because it makes us vulnerable. It's, um, it could be ridiculed. And I think there's deep-rooted even maybe shame around that notion of having the courage to see things for them for yourself. There's a simpler, more practical reason as well, of course, that makes it simpler. We don't have to do the thinking. So it simplifies things to have someone who seems to be an authority, who we agree with, who we can rely upon to think and do the thinking for us. As you mentioned, there's, it sounds like a convenient option to be able to do that. And we absolutely benefit, and we all should, from learning from others. We're not mm -hmm. supposed to take these mm -hmm. roads on our own. Um, one of the great advances that makes the humankind so different from other species is that we're not just locked into our own brains. We can use the experiences and the knowledge gained by others. We can bring that together through our ability to share ideas. That's when human societies begin to flourish. And so we should take advantage of others' thinking and the things that other people believe. However, ultimately, that's not going to be enough. Um, and again, as, as you were mentioning, it limits us 
to simply adopt someone else's worldview because we're too fearful of creating that for ourselves. Yeah. So you have to take that. That's each and every one of us, our responsibilities. You're going to have to think for yourself. No one has all the answers. No one knows it all. And because of what you're saying, those, um, you know, insecurities, fears that we have, there's always people ready to prey on that. And so they're going to tell you, I know everything. I figured it all out or promote themselves. You know, if they don't explicitly say that, talk in that way or make you feel that. And you see people, you know, whether it's types of gurus or, you know, these intellectuals, they might make it seem, you know, I think the intellectual is an interesting one because it becomes like the religion for the non-religious and where the people that ridicule religion sometimes, you'll actually notice they cling to some ideology or to some intellectual in a religious way of like whatever they say is true. They wouldn't acknowledge that, but you see that same type of mindset and we're, because we're prey to that, we can fall for that of, okay, no, I'm not a you know, stupid religious person who believes this, but then they do the same thing with someone else who is still a human being and uh, fallible and makes mistakes. And then so we seek that certainty again, because uncertainty is so Something that makes us feel anxious, makes us feel bad. And life has that. We always have that anxiety of trying to predict why do things first of all happen and what's going to happen. And because we don't have explanations for things, we look for certainty. So if someone says, by the way, I know, I know why this happens and I know what we're doing and I know what we're going to do. Even as I say it, it almost calms me down. Like sure. it feels say to ourselves nice. Yeah. Sometimes. So we hear that, just getting that sense and people are, they sell it. And what I tell people is when you see someone telling you they know everything or they um, never make mistakes or if they don't even say that, but showing you that they're either selling you something or they're selling you themselves. And yeah. so you have to be aware of that, that it's comforting when someone comes and says, Hey, you know, the things you're worried about. I know all of them. It's like, oh, okay, tell me, you Where, know, we want to hear that. Yeah, ab absolutely. And to me, it's, as you said, it is comforting. Even saying it, it's, it's probably even the dialogue we sometimes have with ourselves. It's going to be okay. You're going to make mm -hmm. it. And so when others give us that and they seem strong and powerful and, and knowledgeable, it gives us a sense of comfort. But what you mentioned, if someone comes to you, and says immediately, I have all of the answers. I figured it all out. That actually to us should be the biggest red flag that I know for certain that person probably doesn't because that's an insincere comment to make. The person who's most learned, who's most knowledge, who has the most to share is still growing, is still learning, is still open because that's what got them to where they are. That mindset is what took them to where they can have the knowledge and the insights about the world around them. It's not a, if, if someone is, we're all, None of us are a finished product. We're all growing and evolving. And someone who believes they are a finished product is only revealing how far from completion they are, how mm -hmm. far from actualization yeah. they are. Now, the thing is, you're, and some people do say that, I know everything, um, uh, you know, and they say it in that way. But what you have to be ready for is they usually won't say it. They make it seem like, I've thought about all these things. I've read all the books on these things. So it's based on knowledge that I know everything now. So, you know, so I've, it's like based on science. It's not just like I'm giving you opinions or I'm saying I'm this, it's because I've learned everything. And so that's something to be aware of. I just, when you're talking, I was thinking of Bertrand Russell's mm -hmm. quote where he says, the whole problem with the world is that fools and fanatics are always so certain of themselves and wiser people so full of doubts. And I think that's so interesting. Quote. And, yeah. you know, it goes back because unfortunately, if you hear two people, you know, you'll have someone like talking about a scientific topic even or something. And you'll say, okay, person A and person A says, well, there's a lot of evidence supporting this and so it makes me feel that this is the view but we still need to look at this aspect of the issue we don't have enough information of that but based on that this is i think the best understanding we have right now and then person two says i know that this is the way this is true this is it we figured out i know it and they, they give you that certainty people think well person two seems to know more than person one because they say they know 
the truth. And person one was kind of equivocating and saying, it seems this way. But really, when we look at what science can tell us, it's more what person A or person one was saying. The first person who says, it seems this way, evidence supports this. And people, because when we talk in general, we don't talk that way, you'll hear that they critique, oh, see, they don't really know because he said it seems or this. He didn't say for sure or proves. And even it's funny when you look at you know, people who write articles on science, they oftentimes will make claims that the scientists, uh, it's very often they will make claims the scientists won't make, but even in languages, like, you know, rarely will someone sure. say this proves that this, you know, because yeah. that's not how science tends to work. You have evidence that supports something or refutes something, but rarely can you say this proves that men are more this than women or something like that. But right. people get drawn, like you were saying before, at certain types of material, so they know to make it, uh, you know, the headlines in that way. And in general, that that principle of, listening to the person who speaks with certainty will make sense. Think about if someone um, is going into the other room that we're in right now, we're in the studio, someone walks in and says, "Um, I think maybe I saw an extra chair there, but I'm not sure. I think there was. And someone else goes in and says, no, no, I looked closely and definitively, I can make sure there's one extra chair there. We would be more inclined to believe person two. Person two spoke with certainty. They knew what they were talking about. It looked like they had examined it more closely. So in general, with simple questions of whether there's a chair or not, yes, that works. With complicated questions, questions for which there is no clear answer, there can't be a clear consensus on some of the deepest, most meaningful and important questions about uh, a meaningful life, about what we should value in society. These are questions without clean, crisp answers of Mm -hmm. yes or no, or a binary answer that is clear of whether or not there is a chair. These are complicated, messy things in which we're all in a process of growth and learning whoever you are. So anyone with those types of questions, those more complicated, open-ended questions for which there isn't a conclusive answer, quantitative answer, for example, those are things for which the fact that someone is providing a balanced view, is open to learning, Mm -hmm. and is not as rigid, is a virtue and not uh, a weakness. Right, exactly. It's, you know, that's uh, someone who's looking at both sides. But people, again, we don't like to feel uncertain. We don't like that anxiety. So people come and that's really what a lot of con men and women are going to do is they're going to give you certainty on things that we have to accept. Maybe there isn't certainty. So it'd be nice for someone to say, I know for sure if you do this, this is going to happen. It feels good to have that comfort of feeling like you know or that they, because of them now you know. But we have to accept, you know, no one knows these kinds of things with that kind of certainty. And as Bertrand Russell is saying, a wiser person will be a little bit less certain of themselves because they understand the vastness of what's out there, of how things change, of new information, of how limited our knowledge about any topic is at a certain uh, period of time or you know moment in time. So it, you realize that those people, they're going to be more uh, really realistic and accurate, but they're going to get less attention at yes. times than someone yes. who tells you, this is how it is. You know, and, you know, this is why this is right. And people get drawn to that. And then even more, when it becomes a part of your identity, then it feels even good. Yeah, I'm so right. Look how right we are. Look how wrong they are. When usually these issues are not that black and white. And that's relating to this talking about talking about politics is that when we have these conversations, if your starting point is I'm smart, you're dumb, I'm moral, you're immoral, uh, I'm good, you're bad, I'm trying to promote the good of the world, you're trying to destroy the world. Well, yeah, you're, if you're starting from there, then you're probably not going to get very far other than just something ugly and, you know, disrespectful even. But if it's from, this is how I see certain things or some of I, I, my ideas, I want to understand your perspective so because I respect you. So starting from that 
start that uh, starting point is very different. And so this also comes to the point of recognizing that understanding doesn't have to even mean agreement because sometimes people think the other side is so wrong. I don't even care what they think there. Right. So it's like, at least if millions of people think something, it's not that we have to even say it's right. So you don't have to even go there first, but try to understand them first before anything else, because without understanding, first of all, you'll miss a lot of things and you'll also not recognize that maybe there's some overlap in what you guys actually want. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's the struggle sometimes with things that are binary, uh, even the election, which is one candidate versus another candidate, and there's one winner, mm -hmm. uh, is the thing that it does, I think it does two things. One is it makes it seem like the positions on both sides are further apart than they are, because yeah. it's a win or a loss. Mm -hmm. It makes it very, very dramatic to think this side, if they win, I lose. Um, and there's, you know, even political theory around this, we have the median voter theorem, which suggests that the reason why elections tend to be closer to 50-50 is because the positions move towards the place where they're actually not that far apart so that they can get a coalition of voters that are 50% on mm. each side, indicating that we're probably closer in terms of real policy, maybe not in terms of the character of the candidate or other factors that distinguish us, but in terms of actual policy implications of one side or another, we're not all that far apart. That's the first thing that it does. Um, I think the second thing that it does is that it makes us much more fearful of the other side, mm -hmm. where we begin to think that that other side is just wrong. It's a threat to everything we hold dear, a threat to the country, um, threat to democracy. It, it ex makes the other side seem much more vilified than they maybe should be. Right. Yeah. And, th and that's and that's a big part is that uh, and also what the groups in general want to do is by saying, look, we're so good. We're good. They're evil. Uh, you know, it obviously also makes you more likely to stay within that group. If you're now believing that the other side is evil, how could you go to that other side or even be open to them or looking at them? So we can see that it's a way of also protecting, you know, membership in a way of making sure you don't lose anyone. If you convince someone, hey, you know, come to this gym, the other gym is going to like literally kill you. Like you'll never even think about going to that gym if you believe the lie. And so that's what we're seeing is, and it's crazy because I'll see people on social media, friends of mine on both sides and both sides right now think in America that the other side actually wants to destroy America. Yes. Not even sometimes that their ideas are bad and would destroy, that they intend to destroy. And I've heard it from both sides. They want to actually ruin and destroy things at both sides think that about the other side which is really obviously a bad starting point or now that's become the starting point it hasn't been but it's not just we see things differently i view it like this you want to tax this much i want to tax that much is that you want to ruin america no you want to ruin america so it's hard to even start a conversation with someone that you think wants to destroy absolutely um, you know, yeah and, and this issue i mean it's it's usually if you really begin to understand and this is why understanding the other side is so critical and we could talk about this maybe in the next segment sure is that you begin to see that we probably have a lot of the same values and goals. Mm -hmm. We probably prioritize them differently. The priorities that you have, what you deem to be most important, I have lower down. I don't think it's unimportant. For example, redistributing income and income inequality, I think all of us believe some, that that is a, something we would want to alleviate and mitigate. Less of that is good. Um, having more for all of society, a thriving economy, everybody wants that. These are issues, all of these issues, there's a gamut of them that everyone, I, everyone wants, probably um, most people want. We differ along where we prioritize these things, what things are most important. And once we see it that way, it's just a difference in values. We begin to see that um, it's not that the other side is trying to destroy things. They probably just have a different process that they believe we can get to those goals. Right. Yeah. So, and that's something we might touch on uh, in some upcoming segments of values versus ideologies, which I think having a value-driven mindset is much better than an ideology 
driven mindset, but most of us get drawn to the, the ideologies because it's easier to do. And, and again, allows us to feel part of a team and strong and, you know, we're good, they're bad. So we'll talk a bit about more things than something I talked about before the identity politics issue, which relates to this of how strongly we identify with our politics. Let's go to another commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So we're discussing politics, talking about talking about politics. And, you know, Pam, something you mentioned before the break, and I, I teased it a little bit before that I wanted to talk about, is this issue of identity politics. And not in the way that it's usually used, but being aware of how much we identify with our politics. Yes. Because it, it, a few things happen when we do that. So when it's like, I am a Republican, I am a Democrat, and it's like, such a big part of our identity or I am a free market person or a socialist or this, like when it becomes so much a part of our identity, then like you were talking about before, it makes us less open to hearing other sides. And there's even some research that's shown when they do brain scans on people who have a strong political belief. And then that belief gets uh, attacked in some way or that to read something against that belief, parts of the brain, the way they, you know, I think they, this to kind of make it seem interesting but they said it's as if the you're being attacked by a bear like that's mm -hmm. what your brain kind of looks like that's i think it was basically say your fear response i think of that actually it's like your threat to your sense of self so it really does feel like you're dying in a way because if it is yourself i am a this and then now that is being taken away or in some way challenged it feels like your life is in danger your sense of self is in danger and so i think that's why it's important if we can of course, some of these things are important issues. They are important issues. We're passionate about them. It should be important to you. But being aware of having that space between I am a Republican, I am a Democrat, to I support some of these ideas, or this is some of how I view the world, aligns more this way or that way. And just creating some of that space will make us more open or feel less threatened to hearing the other side because it doesn't feel like your identity your sense of self in that way your brain almost responds like your life is in danger when you're hearing from the other side yeah absolutely i remember i i saw something that made me think of this it was an analogy that was i drew from it i was seeing someone he was uh was actually in the gym and he was on his phone i didn't know he was on his phone he was just talking loudly and very demonstrative and almost yelling and it was very strange what he was, the way he was behaving. I thought maybe he had some type of mental illness. And then I realized, no, he just has a, a Bluetooth in his ear. Mm -hmm. So he was just talking to somebody through the phone. And until I saw the, the earpiece and saw what, was, what he was hearing, then, then it made sense. It was still a little obnoxious, but it made sense why he was doing what he was doing. What I realized is everybody has something in their, their, their earpiece, something that they're hearing, some mm -hmm. inner dialogue or inner things happening within their mind that you know nothing about, that has shaped the way they view the world, right. that's shaping the way they're behaving and acting. Probably something that would explain something that to you seems very uh, counterintuitive or wrong, um, something that you would be very, you have a lot of judgment towards. Once you understand where it's coming from, why they are the way that they are, you begin to have some compassion for that, more understanding, and it's no longer that they're just blatantly wrong, it's that they have a different lived experience than you have. They've seen different things. They've experienced different things. And as a result, they value maybe different things. And so what they're doing, the way they're behaving is a product of that. And I think it just would help to be more tolerant of those things. You mentioned that, you know, saying that I am a anything. If it's a religious uh, you know, thing, a political identification, whatever it is, you can agree with many, many tenets of that. You could want to be a part of a group 
All of that is completely understandable and justified, and we all have those inclinations. But once we say that I am a Republican Democrat, and the other person also goes both ways, you also frame other people, oh, he's a this, he's this person, he's a Democrat, he's a Republican, he's a conservative, he's a whatever it is, um, that ends up then defining the totality of who they are. You're not seeing them as an individual. You're, you're now seeing them in a team. And as a member of a particular team, they're either your friend or your enemy. End of discussion. Mm -hmm. And I think that just ends up being too, it restricts us. It restricts us of relationships we could have. It restricts us of knowledge and understanding that we can be, have our minds opened to. Um, we're trading that comfort that you mentioned that def definitely comes with having people around you that constantly say mm -hmm. that you're agreeing. We're trading that comfort for a lack of knowledge and a lack of growth. We are going to be stuck in the mindset that we have right now if we're only seeing things that simply support that. Right. And, and I th yeah, the identity part, you know, it goes also into how we talk about certain things, you know, where people are like, this is so stupid and that's so wrong. Because if you post something, you know, this idea is so stupid, let's say, and you know, whatever. And again, I'm not saying you should never have strong opinions on things, but being aware of when you say anyone, anything this person says is wrong, anything this person says is not right, or anything this person says is right, you then create, as you mentioned, this term cognitive dissonance, which is going to be very tough for you now later on, even if you see something like, uh-oh, maybe there's some something there. Because it's very hard to like at one moment have said, like, this is the stupidest thing and it's evil and it's wrong to be like, oh, that's like a pretty good point that she made or he made. You, you know, there it becomes very incompatible. You feel so threatened by that. So it's also being aware when you identify and then when you say things in a certain way, which is kind of now the thing on social media. No one just puts, I think this is a good idea. It's that this is the best idea or that the other side, this is the stupidest evil, look how dumb and bad and whatever they are. And so when we talk in those ways, you create this framework where now you can't, even be open to hearing it because you know you're going to feel so bad like oh i said that guy was like the evil mm -hmm. devil this bad person how could i even acknowledge oh, actually what what he did there was kind of good or i agree with that idea because you don't have that space anymore so this is also related to that identity when we certain we make certain things attached with certain values of meaning within us then we close off a lot of the the gray and the nuance to what could be there like i really dislike this thing that he did but you know what, this part, actually, I kind of agree with that, or at least this part of it, if it was modified in this way, actually, I think I'd be fully in agreement with it. So we close off the possibility of looking at things and really critically evaluating what's going on. Absolutely. I, I even think we should be striving for moments where what we really want is likes and followers and people yeah. who will say, amen, great job, that was great, that's what we, we enjoy hearing. But what we really should be after, I think, is moments where someone who disagrees with you that would be my goal, actually, honestly, the optimal is someone who just sits there and thinks, hmm, maybe they haven't completely been persuaded that they're going to switch their sides, but their mind's open to something new. That, to me, is much more valuable, that, that just um, opening of the mind, that willingness to see things in a new way, even if it's not completely agreeing with your position. They might not like the post that you made or the position that you put out. They may not change their vote, but they've opened their mind to something. That, to me, is more valuable than a bunch of people around us simply saying, you're right, mm -hmm. over and over again, even though it's very comforting yeah. to see that. And, yeah, and also it goes back to something you were saying before about the things that kind of sell or get attention. And so when people are posting, most people's motivation is to get the most attention with yes. their post. And so you get less attention with something like, here's some ideas I think are valid in this argument, or, you know, actually I kind of like something that the quote unquote other side said in this way might get less attention. Also it might yes. get attention from the other side saying, Oh, see someone from that side thinks we're right too, or something like that. Right. But if you put like, look at these dumb idiots, da, 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 and like make it. 
And sometimes it can even be funny or humorous, but if it's really strong and intense and has a lot of conflict and whatever, people get drawn to it and you'll get more attention that way. So unfortunately, it's also polarized our ways of expression, not just yes. in our ideas, but in the way people express things. You can't just say, this is what I think. Right? Like people feel like you have to make it so attacking and so strong and and negative and, you know, showing how right we are on the other side is so wrong. So unfortunately, even our communication, and, and it reminds me of also what's happened with reality TV. You know, when you look at these reality TV shows, the majority of them, if things go smoothly or in a healthy way, it won't get people as interested, unfortunately, a lot of the times. They want drama and someone throws a drink in someone's face, yeah. it slaps. And, you know, I always thought from the beginning when I was watching reality TV, I'm like, when you look at these shows and they bring people back for future seasons, they're almost always bringing it back the people who are, being the most unhealthy in a relational way, the people that are being emotionally unhealthy, the people that are being abusive, even at times emotionally abusive or even verbally or physically at times, those are the people that we reinforce as getting more attention and then they make lots of money. They get the things that everyone is looking for now. Money and fame uh, are the things that people, especially always, but younger and younger generations more and more seem to be drawn towards. And so there, that's how you should be. It's like, you know what, just be kind of uh, words I don't want to even use. Yeah. And if you use, if you become that kind of person, it's actually better. People quote unquote like it because it gets more attention, not for being good, but it just gets more yeah. attention. Well, you know, many things get attention that are not necessarily virtuous. If you think about when we're driving on a freeway, the thing that gets all of our attention is if there's a, a wreck on mm -hmm. the other side, everyone's mm -hmm. looking, everyone slows down. It gets people's attention. And on based on Facebook or YouTube al algorithms, they would be giving you more of that because when our mind and our attention drifts towards something, it's reinforcing the algorithm, which is not a human being. It's a computer. It's a system that is just looking at where your attention goes and giving you more of that. So it would constantly be giving us more, more car wrecks, mm -hmm. constantly, because that's the thing that all of our attention goes towards. So the thing that captures our attention, and we had this discussion, you and I often have, where our position on something is probably a bit more nuanced, a bit more balanced. It's not as mm -hmm. uh, divisive and decisive, both, right? It's, it's the other side is wrong, and I'm absolutely sure of it. And that may get more likes, but it goes against, it would be something that we would be doing without integrity because we wouldn't really believe it. We know that the issue is more complicated. Even in our discussion today, it would probably get a lot more uh, attention if we were to say something very, very decisive. We are going to show and attack why the social media is ruining lives and something very aggressive mm -hmm. towards Facebook, for example. Or, and having a discussion where we attack each other. I do spill the tea in my hand. And it, it would get more attention, it would get more drama, but it wouldn't be authentic. And I think we should be at least striving for things that are more real, more authentic, more accurate about the world, rather than things that are um, the most extremely emotionally stimulating parts of yeah. what we actually see. Yeah, usually, and usually the more meaningful things aren't so intense in that way. It's it, I don't know why this connection to, in marriages, you know, when you think about romance, people usually, when you hear romance, you think, you know, in front of the Eiffel Tower with, you know, this and, uh, you know, roses on the whatever. It's like these grand gestures. That's romance, this intense moment. But really, when you look at people like John Gottman and their research, he'll talk about kind of romance being built in these little moments. It's like little meaningful moments build actual genuine romance that lasts a long time. You know, we're looking for this flash in the pan, something that burns bright for a second and goes out. That gets our attention. And as is the case right now, we just want our attention for a few seconds or a few minutes, and then we go to something else. And so people are just looking for that. And actually, this is something I've noticed, you know, you could TikTok and these things, and it's, it could be entertaining, but people just have to find a way to be entertaining for like 10 seconds, 15 seconds, right. in a way that usually isn't very meaningful or deep or has a lot of substance to it, but it just gets our 
attention. I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of hate from the TikTokers out there. So I'm not saying it's all bad again. Let me make that very clear. But this direction we're going to is just how can you get people's attention for a few seconds? It's very superficial. Or on Instagram, people put like couple goals and it's just a picture that looks nice or something. And I always think a good, genuine relationship it's not just something that you can capture in a picture or a 10 second video. Like there could be a nice moment, but meaningful things are usually less this kind of like they shine in a certain way. Things yeah. that are more meaningful are something that actually uh, aren't so hot topic in that way or hot button that bring up those things. But people get drawn. And as you're saying with social media, even more the algorithms and the way they work, they're just trying to get your attention. They don't really yes. care why they don't care if it's like, Oh, let's get people's attention. And that's really what, what's been happening is let's get people's attention. Even if they start to hate each other, but they're all going to want to know like that they're about to fight each other. So they need to know all the information. So they're all gearing up for this kind of information war. I think there's a show called info yes. wars, which I don't want to, uh, I don't want to align myself with that at all, but you know, you uh, get into this information war. So you kind of like, we got to know what's happening and everyone's fighting, but it, it's not good. What, what's yeah. happening. Well, I mean, if the algorithm, if encouraging us to eat broccoli was good for the algorithm, it would teach us to do that. It's agnostic as to the value that it has for our life. Right. It just so happens that things that are more divisive, yep. where you're putting two sides opposed to each other, if you're triggering fear, these are the things that t tend to get more of our attention. And by virtue of that, that's what we end up being exposed to more of. And it has certain ramifications for society. One of them is we are more divided and more polarized than we've ever been in the past. And this is, again, not to completely dismiss, and you mentioned this, you alluded to this, that technology is bad. Technology has done incredibly positive things for us. The smartphones we all carry around with us are a, mir it's a miraculous device. It's a miraculous piece of engineering that is a product of incredible, incredible changes that um, we now get to take advantage of. We have the library of the world at our fingertips. Our children will have that throughout their entire lives. That's an incredible, incredible feat. So it has a lot of positive things. I don't think any of us are completely permanently putting away our smartphones and saying we don't want them anymore. So it has many, many positive effects. It's recognizing that the, the difference between this and some other technological innovations or moments of economic transformation, this one is really embedded into the fabric of how we live. It's with us all the time. It's in mm -hmm. our pockets all the time. We are, on average, people check their phones 100 times per day. So that's how much it's, you know, the, the advent of um, railroads, or planes or other important, meaningful things often affected a segment of the economy and, and allowed aspects of the economy to flourish, but it had less of a behavioral effect where it was really part of how we lived. I think that's what's different now mm -hmm. about this technological innovation. Yeah, and so it's, it's something that we, you know, um, generally in life, we kind of just let things happen to us. And it's always important to be intentional on in how you live your life. So if you don't think about how you use your phone and social media, you probably, with what we're seeing, it'll take you to bad places. It's not going to be good. So you have to be intentional. How, what what am I doing? And I, there's a book I read a few years ago, a Mindful Tech by David Levy, and I thought it was really interesting. So I wasn't saying put your phone away or never use social media, but really it's about taking inventory, seeing how you're using technology, and then being more mindful of it. So what am I feeling? Or you know, and I work with my clients a lot, and you'll see it's like, yeah, you know, before you go check Instagram for like the fifteenth time today, what maybe were you feeling? And because a lot of times we're using it as a distraction. So what were you trying to distract yourself from? What feeling was it you're trying to get away from? Uh, or yeah, what were you doing online? Were you trying to maybe feel better about yourself in some way? A lot of times usually you do feel worse, but there's just ways that were, if you go into autopilot or even like, you know, I've heard of things like doom scrolling and these things where they want you to in a way check out and just let yourself get guided. Like your impulses just take you in different directions, keep your attention, all these things that aren't good. I, I really like a quote from, uh, I saw in the social dilemma where it said, 
if you know you're not paying for a product you are the product you know so and we know with with things like social media your eyeballs your attention is the product so it's just being where we have to be intentional so again it's not like oh social media is bad you have to delete all of it you can i don't think it's a bad idea if you want to do that but uh before even you need to necessarily go there just being a little bit more mindful of what you look at and also even why you post things always i I always ask people it's not bad to post things but you want to be intentional recognize what's my motivation in posting this right now yeah the why is really important of why we check. I remember this becoming very vivid for me. I saw um, it was a small uh, parents uh, and they had a small child and the child still had a pacifier. It would always put in his pacifier. And the dad was saying, this is so terrible. Anytime my baby feels any stress, he needs to feel the pacifier to alleviate that stress. Right as he, And he said, it's making me stressed. Right when he said that, he picked up his phone and started scrolling. Yeah. <laughs> and I just thought, that's your pacifier. Yep. That's the pacifier that we have. It alleviates a moment where we have to maybe feel some discomfort or anxiety. Absolutely. fills exactly. the gaps for us. Yeah, that's such a good point. Yeah, that's, it's become our pacifier. How do we deal with just not feeling or being overwhelmed by the feelings? And, and it's, not, it's not always bad to calm ourselves down in certain ways. So again, it's not to say, but it's recognizing what are you avoiding when you do that? Sometimes it's something that should be faced. Let's go to another commercial break. Again, I'm with Parham. We're talking about talking about politics. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So I'm joined by uh, my brother Parham today. We've been talking about talking about politics. And actually, I was going to have him on my show today anyway. We planned it about a week and a half, two weeks ago. And this uh, also points to how fast our news cycles move these days and so much happens and then the tension completely becomes about something else. Uh, but we were going to talk about the vacancy on the Supreme Court uh, with the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And there's, of course, a lot of controversy and politics surrounding that. But Parham being a, a lawyer, he went to Columbia Law School, as I mentioned before, I feel like a p- proud parent talking about mm, schools. Thank you. Too. But uh, so, you know, but he wanted to share some of the, from a legal perspective, not getting to the politics. I know, again, that's another thing where, you know, there's politics in everything now. It's hard not to, anything, you know, we talk about masks are a political statement yeah. now. And so many things uh, become political that don't necessarily need to be. So, uh, but we were going to talk about the Supreme Court and, and Parham sharing a bit from a legal perspective about um, the significance of what's going on and sharing some of that insight. So uh, we yeah. wanted to at least talk a bit about that still, even though we wanted to bring up some other topics. But go ahead. Yeah, since that was part of the original plan, as you mentioned, it is crazy how quickly the world changed. We had yeah. a discussion. I thought, uh, you know, it might be that this might become a more stale issue, a less relevant issue in the next 10 days. And I think our conclusion was that, well, no, it's still going to be pretty big. How much can change in just 10 days? Yeah. And a lot has. A lot has changed. A lot of things have taken place. And so it's become a less pressing, less relevant issue today. Um, but nonetheless, there are there is a lot at stake. And in discussing, you know, how politics seems to be touching everything, I think the Supreme Court and the federal judiciary in general is an example of that. Um, and that over time, it has become more politicized. You know, throughout the history um, of the court in the United States, political alliances always w- were a factor. Um, we did have presidents who would appoint Supreme Court justices that were more aligned with their political stance. The thing that's changed over time and particularly over the last several decades is that that politicization has become more extreme, where we see appointments that are completely opposed by the other side. Historically, usually there was far more consensus that though we disagree with this person's political stance on these specific issues, 
um, we are willing to appoint them and approve them as a Supreme Court justice, as a judge, because they're qualified. They have the qualifications of being able to understand the law. And there was this expectation that their decisions and their influence in the court wouldn't be deeply politicized. The judiciary um, has always been the branch within the U.S. government of the three branches that's supposed to be generally more apolitical, mm -hmm. not completely immune from politics. Through the appointment process, there are still political influences of the executive and the legislature who influence and shape who the court will be. But generally, the reason they have lifetime appointments is so that they're not heavily influenced by their political positions. They're not coming at a legal issue with an expectation of what they want the outcome to be. Mm -hmm. They look to the law. They look to the Constitution. They look, that, they look at relevant precedent and make their decision on the basis of what it should be objectively. So I think this in some ways touches on the discussion we've been having thus far in seeing that um, it's ideal to not let your biases excessively, exceedingly color your view of the facts of what things are. In the law, that becomes a very important issue mm -hmm. because the legitimacy of the court is that they're not as subject to these political whims. And so they'll see things as they are, even if it goes against the existing majority, even if it goes against political will in that moment. There are some things, there are some curbs or checks on that power that need to be in place that are not strictly influenced by political factors. Right. Yeah, it's, it, um, you know, one of the main things in U.S. Uh, politics that's so important to hear about the government is the checks and balances and that yes. no one person or one group has has too much power and so the the judicial system and the highest part of that is the supreme court is supposed to be part of that checks and balances but like you said unfortunately with everything becoming so partisan and political even we see that and even it to the point where when they're choosing a justice it's about well what is he or she going to say on a specific case and comes on a specific yeah. legislation and we know what we think they're going to pass or what will be possible to pass based on who's on the court. And I think that is unfortunate that we've seen that. But something you also mentioned is just a reminder, even judges who we think Supreme Court judges being, well, they're focused on law and legal standard and to be a lawyer, it's all about logic and rational mind and all these things. Everyone gets influenced by biases, by things unrelated to just quote unquote facts and you know whatever is there. And we have to be aware of that. So and it's not saying that everyone's doing it the same way and there's no degree of doing it more or less. But it's just something to be very aware of, that no one is completely unbiased as a human being. It really is impossible to have no biases. And so even, you know, this is not about biases specifically, but I think there's this great study that was done looking at judges making parole decisions. Yes. And they found that when it got closer to lunchtime, their rate of granting parole was much lower than after lunch or earlier in the day. And it, it can, in a way, make sense because, you know, we talk about having a gut feeling. And if your yeah. gut is feeling hungry or a little bit uncomfortable, you kind of feel something negative. And we can't always attribute what our feeling is coming from. So we think, oh, it's something about this person in front of me that I don't have a good feeling about letting them out. And I'm going to trust yeah. that gut, so to speak. Uh, but we see that even in judges who we would think would be so unbiased and impartial and aware of what they're thinking and feeling, that they were influenced by something that's so irrelevant and really obviously unfair. What an injustice that based on the timing and how yeah. hungry the judge is making your parole decision, essentially, yeah. that could affect the likelihood and maybe even also fatigue, let's say. But so it, it's just it's something to keep in mind that this um, and, and for all of us. So if we think ourselves, oh, I'm unbiased, we'll say, oh, I don't yeah. have bias. It's like, no, you just don't know them or you're not aware of what's going on. You definitely have them because we all do. Yeah. So even in, in judges, we see and sometimes you'll read you know, um, either a dissent or an opinion from one of these justices, even now, but in history, and you're like, how could they think? And, and this is something I always say, some of the 
you know, stupidest ideas have been written about in the most intelligent language. You know? Absolutely. Right. People support yes. supported slavery in the United States with this very, you know, eloquent sounding and using biblical things and using, you know, things that sound so lofty. Yes. But really, the idea under it, underneath it was just completely inhumane and really stupid to think about owning another person somehow being okay. But it was written in this language. So we have to be aware of, again, going back to that thinking for yourself, just because someone says an idea in a very smart sounding way doesn't mean the idea itself is smart or good. Yeah. And I think the law makes this very vivid mm -hmm. in that we believe, well, what does the law say? The, the black letter, plain understanding and reading of the law should be able to dictate the outcome. Even language is open to interpretation, and it's mm -hmm. not completely unequivocal uh, in terms of what the outcome of that language is. How we interpret and read, even the same words can be different. And as you mentioned, the example, and that was a very famous study by several economists showing that even in sentencing, judges are affected by something as meaning, as trivial as how close they were to lunchtime. The effect was statistically significant, not a huge effect, but still, even if there's some difference in terms of the sentence that a uh, someone, I think it was parole, mm -hmm. people up for parole were receiving, how long they're going to be sentenced in, in jail based on whether the judge had eaten or not, shows you how much our biases in unconscious ways, ways we don't recognize, are shaping our worldview, are shaping our decision making. And even in the law that ends up taking, taking a hold, the issue is to what extent how much? Mm -hmm. um, how much are you coming at a decision? This is from a, a judge's perspective, a court's perspective, based on what you think the outcome should be, aligned with your values, and how much are you letting the facts of the case, right. um, the dictates of what the law are, influence what the outcome should be, rather than finding some other way to get to the outcome you want. And seeking to find, does the law give me any window, any possibility of getting there to get to the outcome rather than what the law simply dictates? Sure. And yeah, usually you're not even aware of it because even the quote unquote facts you might see differently based on your biases. Oh, like they said it this way, but this is more significant. And you don't even realize what's there. And I think, I don't know, and you might maybe can explain this. That could be part of why there's not just one justice, Supreme Court justice, like who sure. makes all decisions, because in a way having several of them you might i think in my estimation the biases will hopefully balance out a little bit more when you have more than one person because if it's just one person then it's all of his or her biases are going to be in every decision of the court but if you have more than hopefully there could be some balancing of the biases in a way that could lead to a, a better outcome or hopefully a more just outcome yeah that that's the idea i think in principle and there's nothing that dictates that there should be nine supreme court justices in the us constitution it's very the language is quite broad mm -hmm. in discussing how the language of the law can be very open and open to interpretation. Uh, it has ranged between five to ten justices throughout the history of the U.S. There was ten during the Civil War. Um, and there's been nine, and that was dictated by Congress, but Congress can change that. Mm -hmm. And that's why there's been some discussion even of, of packing the court and having more justices. Um, but I think, in general, you're, you're right in suggesting that we begin to at least have less impact for individual or personal biases for these very important decisions. Again, the cases that get to the U.S. Supreme Court are the most meaningful and important cases impacting, um, impacting all of the entire country, impacting society. And so those are really important cases for which it's really important to get it right and to not have biases of one judge exceedingly influence those outcomes. But it's still, as you mentioned, being completely and assuming that you can be completely neutral and objective. If that's not happening with a sitting U.S. Supreme Court judge, mm -hmm. 
who is confined by what the law says in the reading of the law, it seems like that's one place where it would be hard to have your biases. And we see it even there. And I think if we see it there, we should presume that we're doing it in our lives every day as well, each of us. Yeah. And, it, you know, it's also a reminder of going back to that capital T truth. You know, you're, um, you know, when it comes to economics, you're the person I turn to and I have a thought or an idea because you can help me understand it better. But even Nobel Prize winning economists will view the same issue differently. So it goes back to there very often aren't these truths that are for sure. And then so people say, oh, look, this doctor said this or this. Mm -hmm. And it's possible and doesn't mean they're necessarily even wrong or they're trying to do something. Sometimes they have a bad you know, intention, but they don't have to even have a bad intention. Very smart, wise, educated people will have different opinions on the same thing. And it could also be another reminder of that humility. If a Nobel Prize winning economist can be wrong or at least differ with another one, one of them is maybe more wrong or let's say they see different aspects of it. Then, of course, we shouldn't think, you know, it's funny the way people write about, oh, socialism, this or capitalism, this. And like even the economists who have been studying for years don't have that kind of certainty, yes. but people write about it in that way. So it's a reminder that no one fully knows or we're trying to figure it out. Be aware of that. Even justices can get it wrong. You know, yes. if they're on the Supreme Court wrong, you know, is like a relative term. But, you know, we have to just be aware of that going back to you can't have anyone think for you. And that you have to recognize that we don't know things as much as we think we do a lot of times. And that truth that we're seeking is more of something, an aspirational thing than something you've probably achieved on anything that you think you know. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think there's, there's evidence of this in a lot of um, research that's been done. Another one was one where they gave the, the position. This was the negotiators making an international negotiation. And they presented them with the viewpoint that they had, the positions that they had but it was delivered to them as if these were the opinions of the other side. Mm -hmm. The other side is saying these things, and they dismissed Insights on uh, the Supreme Court, a little bit about that. Um, you know, there's much more, of course, we could discuss on that and, and, and see what happens. It's obviously going to have a big impact on the country, and it's um, something that will be figured out, I think, in the next weeks. And, you know, we're actually going to go into our last commercial break. We have to wrap the show up a few minutes early. But in the last uh, segment, we'll kind of wrap up some thoughts about talking about uh, talking about politics, and, and uh, maybe Pound, we can share some more of if you have any legal or some thoughts about that as well. Let's go into our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So, Parham and I tonight, uh, today, I said that twice tonight, uh, we're, we're talking about, so. yeah, talking about, talking about politics. And, you know, so for the last segment, we thought actually to wrap it back up about being able to talk about politics, especially with loved ones or with anyone really, but what we're seeing is that it's been so hard to discuss uh, things with people because of the polarization and and all the issues we've talked about in a way relate to this. So if you are yourself on your Facebook feed and you're seeing everything pro whatever you are and anti the other side, and then let's say your husband or wife is seeing the exact opposite because that's what they're seeing it, that anti everything you, pro them, then when you try to talk, you're coming from two very different starting points. And I think that's one issue uh, we didn't really touch on as much, but this, that we really have these different realities that we're, we're talking about. And that's really unfortunate that we can't even agree on what's the truth on very basic things. I think this is sad. And I think it's definitely related to these dynamics of, like you're saying, having our news tailored to what we want to feel or believe and think already. And so even basic facts get disputed, which makes it very hard. It's hard to have a starting point of like, what, you know, if you're talking about what happened at a car accident, one side doesn't even think there was a car accident. Well, then you can't even discuss what led to the car accident. So that does make it hard. But at the same time, um, 
going back to recognizing that you don't have to agree. And so that could be a good place to start. You're going to talk with someone else. You have opposing sides and you don't need to have an agreement or neither one of you is going to convince the other one that you are right and they are wrong. So have that as your starting point is we want to understand, not necessarily by agreement. Of course, that's good to have some common ground. But first, it's about understanding rather than sameness of thought. Yeah, that's a great point. I think about the most, I guess, intellectual breakthroughs that I feel in my life where I saw things in a very, very, um, in a way that changed me for the better. It usually started not with certainty that I've changed my mind. It started with a little bit of mess. It started with a little bit of uncomfortableness and uncertainty. And that was be the beginning of the breakthrough. That was mm -hmm. the beginning of the discovery. It began with that uncomfortable feeling now if one immediately pushes away that uncomfortable feeling and seeks comfort distracts themselves from it which i think most of us do a lot of the time all of us then we can't have that amazing breakthrough so the great things come from a little bit of a moment of anxiety and tension and it's not permanent it will go away but that's the pathway to get to something better and so when we feel a little bit of that, we shouldn't immediately shy away from that, that someone has opened our eyes to a new way of seeing something. That should be something we welcome, that we accept, and we recognize as something that's going to hopefully help us get a deeper understanding of what we're looking at, rather than something that's shattered our sense of personal identity and that we don't even know what we are anymore. Right. And that also relates to earlier things we talked about, like um, humility of understanding that you don't know everything. And also humility and humanity. Being human means we don't know everything. You can't know everything. Like no. You have to just understand what a human being is, is. We're fallible. We don't know. As human beings, as society, we can't know all the knowledge of the world. Yes. We're always trying to understand things. So it's having first an understanding of the realism of we don't know everything. You can't know everything. You're going to be wrong about things every day and things you do, about ideas you have. And so having that openness and that genuine humility which is the genuine reality of being human will allow you to be more open to understanding oh you know i thought i saw it this way now i see it more that way yes. and so it's also the stakes of being right or wrong i think are too high in the way we talk about things and and different cultures even more for example in the iranian culture there is a sense that you either have to know everything or you're stupid so someone yeah. is like smart and knows everything or you're an idiot if you don't and i remember this uh when i was at doing a, an internship at the USC Counseling Center, they showed us this video, and it was kind of funny to me, I mean, some parts of it, but it was showing students from around the world, and it was trying to give us some cultural diversity understanding. And so when they showed the student actually from Iran, and he was saying how, first he was so surprised that kids were eating in the class, and that really mm. shocked him, which, you know, there's some of that. But then the other one that I, made me laugh, but I remember everyone else was like kind of nodding, trying to understand. He said, you know, when it... Yeah, I was in a class and the someone asked the professor a question. The professor, professor said, you know, I don't know. Let me look into that. I'll get back to you. And he said, I was shocked wow. because in my country, even if the professor doesn't know, he's going to give you an answer to show that he knows because he has to show kind of he knows everything. And I think that's so true is that unfortunately we've made it that you have to know everything or you're stupid as people, as someone who's smart or even as parents, parents think. If my kids ask me, I have to know all the answers to everything every time. And because of that, they oftentimes avoid a conversation. Yeah. What if we talk about drugs and my kid asks me a question that I don't know the answer to or how to answer, so I shouldn't even have the conversation. So we avoid the conversation, period, because we're afraid of not knowing everything. So we have to accept that you don't know everything, no one knows everything, and that's okay, and that's the reality. And so that also can allow for you to be more open to hear, you know what? I can always learn from someone else. Like someone can actually, like you were saying, open my mind, expand my mind, rather than it's a threat to my 
who I am, my goodness, my smartness, all of those things, if they challenge you, because then you're not going to be open to new information. It's too yeah. scary. You bring up the example of with children, and I think that's interesting. I do think it's important. You know, sometimes we want to give our the child a sense of comfort and alleviate their anxieties. It depends on their age. This is, a, I guess, a, a child development question in a way. But there is real value in showing, I think, what that teacher did, where they said, you know, that's a really important question. You as parent even say, I'm going to go learn more about that mm -hmm. and see what I discover. Not that I have all of the answers. I think mm -hmm. it gives us, we ourselves get maybe some sense of validation by having our kids think we're superhuman. and We have all the answers. And I think showing a level of curiosity, intellectual yeah. curiosity, and maybe even something that the child teaches you and showing them, oh, I never thought of it that mm -hmm. way. I'm glad you brought that to my attention welcoming the openness of seeing things in new ways both from your child or from whoever you're speaking with and also showing that you're welcoming that in your own life right that example i think is a really good one to set for children sure that yeah that modeling is going to be very key for him it's like you know it's okay to not know and you're not going to know and that's all right and show them we expect you to not know but the important thing is to we you know we can talk about the fixed versus the growth mindset that you're going to try to you always are going to be knowing it's not like you just know everything or you don't course you you can't that's not possible like you know so you always are trying to learn more and understand more and then you have a better understanding so it, it's encouraging that mindset of, of growth versus just like you have to know it and you're going to get judged based on on that alone and there's also it depends a lot on this on the context so whether we have a level of certainty about it or not for the question of will the sun come up tomorrow i think we have a lot of evidence to suggest that it probably will and we can have a different level of certainty, our probability distribution on that is going to be very, very, very high, and as it should be. Um, but so certain types of scientific questions, or for example, laws of physics, for example, have a lot more precision, but questions that you maybe would say in the realm of social sciences, but some of the bigger, broader, deeper questions about how a society should function, mm -hmm. um, what you know, tax policies should be, what the role of government is, how we... Um, shape and change the laws in terms of how they impact our morality and our ethics, all of these very complicated, deep questions involve trade-offs between values. They don't lend themselves to very clear answers. And there are questions about which we should be constantly evolving and changing. Our society is evolving and our laws and our institutions should reflect that change, should respond to that change. It can't be so fixed and, and rigid. Yeah. And so we, we should constantly be with those deeper, more important, meaningful questions, I think, we should be, we should have that humility about it. We should be constantly in a, in a learning mindset. And we should know that anyone who comes at us for those questions and says, I have all of the answers or I have absolute certainty with these things, that is more of a red flag than a cause of comfort and validation of their beliefs. Yeah. And so, I mean, you know, with people, you know, the way we post on social media about these issues, it's like we were saying before. You know, Nobel Prize winning economists don't have the certainty that people are saying they have on this is bad for the country. This is good. This is going to build the economy. This is going to destroy the economy. Somehow people, uh, you know, they think they should know these things. And so it goes back to those ideologies that, well, if more taxes is always bad or less taxes is always good. Like they just look at that rather than seeing that it's more of a complex issue than any of those things. And so this also to me relates to trying to understand yourself better. Why do I believe these things? We tend to think I believe it because it's truth and I'm so smart, but we're guided by values or different things that make you more likely to like this or that. And so understanding yourself is also important to recognize that you don't just believe these things in a vacuum, even inside your own head. You have these reasons for wanting to believe raising taxes is good or bad, whatever it might be. And so understanding yourself is very important and not just taking it as if I believe something, I believe it because it's fact. 
Usually we make moral decisions based on feeling first, and then we ad hoc come up with the reasons. Jonathan Haidt has done yeah. a lot of really important research in this uh, realm. And so recognizing that is very important, that it, you usually are feeling something first, not just thinking, oh, I, I just thought of all the facts and I'm this. You know, people who are pro-gun or anti-gun, it, it's less usually about data than a feeling, pro-life versus yeah. pro-choice. And, and another thing I wanted to make sure I added before we wrapped up is that, you know, understanding is important. And if you tell me you don't even understand how the other side believes what they believe on an issue, that tells me you actually don't really know why you believe what you believe either. You can't fully understand an issue uh, if you don't have some at least understanding of the other side. So if you're pro-life and people are pro-choice or vice versa, if you tell me I can't even understand how you can think that, then I don't think you're actually really grasping the whole situation. Again, you don't have to agree with them. I'm not right. saying say they're right and you're wrong or that's so valid, but at least if you understand where they're coming from, why they want or say what they say, until you do that, you can't really show me that you understand this issue. It just doesn't uh, make sense to me. And I think that's a great point. It doesn't mean that you've completely changed and agreed with what they're saying completely, but understanding why they believe what they believe is a very important step. And I actually think it makes it much easier if, if one wants to be persuasive to understand why is that person disagreeing with what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Once you understand where that disagreement comes from, the source of it, then it's much easier. That understanding helps you be more convincing and more persuasive of at least trying to show why you believe what you believe. So understanding their biases and what lends himself to have an opposing view doesn't make you weaker. I think you should also be more aware of the weaknesses of your own argument than the other mm -hmm. side is. See where the flaws are. And that, I think, is, again, self-awareness and introspection that begins to show, okay, this is why I'm having these mindsets. And so you are almost able to deflect in advance what may be the attacks because you're already aware of what those are. It's not coming at you as a big surprise. Well, and help you to understand your side better why, and you might even over time shift what you think or believe with that. That openness, it's it's challenging. You almost have to be effort, you know, it takes intention and effort to stay open because our tendency is to close and to go into that cocoon and feel safe and comfortable. So you're going to have to challenge yourself to get out of it. It's not something, it's not going to happen automatically. Like even as we're talking about mm -hmm. it, both of us are not going to want to embrace discomfort in the moment, right? It doesn't feel as good to do right. that. So you have to actively seek it out. And so even, you know, uh, I think that's something to keep in mind. Absolutely. And I think one, one thing to sum up, I mean, in a world in which uh, the world is kind of trying to really, really curate us and nudge us towards our current position and just maybe a more extreme version of that opinion, that self-awareness becomes even more important. I think it's always been important throughout history. I think it's particularly important now because the influences around us of how we consume information is really pushing us towards excessive rigidity. Yeah, so it's something to be aware of that open-mindedness. If you're, I'm sure you will talk to your loved ones, family members, or strangers about these things. Hopefully you can recognize that what you think you know, you probably don't know as well as you think you do. And that's okay because no one knows everything or even knows everything about something. And so hopefully you can keep that open mind while you discuss. We can always learn from each other, but we can't learn from each other until we're open to having the conversation with each other and being open to learn from each other. A big thank you to Powerhome for joining me today. Thank you, Powerhome, for coming in and to Ghazaleh here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulakwi. Have a wonderful day. Mm -hmm.